You're standing at the end of a road before a small brick building. Around you is a forest. A small stream flows out of the building and down a gully. Let's try east. And then a bit later, it's now pitch dark. If you proceed, you will likely fall into a pit. Oh no. Let's try to light the lamp. Your lamp is now on. You are in a debris room filled with stuff washed in from the surface. A low, wide passage with cobbles becomes plugged with mud and debris here, but an awkward canyon leads upward and west. A note on the wall says, Magic Word XYZZY. What is happening is that I'm playing a game called Adventure, which you can pip install thanks to Brandon Rhodes. Adventure is a faithful port to Python 3, from the original 1977 Fortran code by Crowther and Woods that lets you explore Colossal Cave where others have found fortune and treasure and gold. Anyway, it's a really fun text-based adventure game. And in this episode, we talk to Brandon Rhodes about this marvelous game. Welcome to Testing Code. Well, welcome to Testing Code. I'm super excited to have Brandon Rhodes on the podcast. Um, I first ran into Brandon at PyCon Portland, but um, Brandon, can you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Brandon Rhodes. Um, I'm I think most uh, widely known for my talks at um, PyCon conferences and events uh, in the United States, and then uh, on a few happy occasions in in other corners of the world. Um, I often have to really, really dig in on a topic before I understand it. And early on being a member of Python Atlanta, I found that the fact that I had to kind of go so deep, go into a topic and come out with a real understanding, I could then share that with others by uh, giving a talk. So probably most uh, widely known for my talks at Python conferences, but I also um, used to blog more regularly. Um, I have more permanent thoughts up on a site I'm writing called Python Patterns. And then I do have a open source project or two uh, from childhood, I enjoyed going out and looking at the stars and the planets. And so um, I, I maintain a user-friendly Python astronomy library, an old one called PyEFIM, and a more modern NumPy-based one uh, called Skyfield that are designed to be easy to use and learn for the hobbyist that, that wants to know where the stars and planets are at night. Wow, that's neat. Um, I was looking up, there's a... There's a, a a website called roadsmill.org. I think that's yours. It's my website, yes. Um, and it's got you've got a list of talks up, and I have to scroll to get through them all. So you've given a lot of talks. I wow. have, um, and and this isn't something you know everyone can support, but I kind of have a reluctance to ever give a talk a second time if it's been recorded and put on YouTube. If it hasn't, huh. then um, you know, given that conference number two I go to probably has a mostly different group of people than number one, uh, I, I don't feel bad about giving a talk again. But if it's already up on YouTube, 
I feel a bit awkward about giving an audience that, that has come all the way to a conference something that they could just watch online. And so um, I do try, especially if a con- conference has invited me and is giving me free registration and uh, I'm going to go to a city and go to a conference I normally wouldn't, I like to come up with, with something new for them. And hmm. that has, yeah, as, as, as you can see, that's, that's resulted in a, in a lot of unique um, uh, talks. Since each time I like to, to try to dig out something new that I've been doing or thinking about. I ran across this project of yours called uh, Python Adventure. It says it's a faithful port of the adventure game to Python 3 from the original 1977 Fortran code. I want to know about this game and also kind of how you got into being the one to do this port. Did you play these old games on like the Fortran ones or anything else? I was in the um, unique position of having a father who worked at Bell Telephone Laboratories. Wow. And so... um, one of his best friends where we lived in Massachusetts was, was a coworker. We sometimes would go over to their house and me and my sister would play with their daughters and um, late at night when every, you know, the parents would still be talking. They found that they could keep me quiet if they needed to by turning on the um, green and black terminal in uh, the, the coworker's uh, bedroom upstairs. Uh, using the modem to dial into one of the computers where they worked at Bell Labs. And and first, Dad found that I could be kept quiet for a while by teaching me the CD command, because <laughs> it lets yeah. you kind of explore around the computer. You can CD and go into a directory, an LS, to look and look at all the strange file names, and, and, and as a child, you can't guess what they are. Then you CD dot dot, and you escape back out, and DWD will show you where you are. Um, and I had to be shown that because adventure was not on the standard path. So I had to CD to the games directory in order to then run adventure. Um, and, uh, adventure, however, was so intense for me that I often, once I had died again in the game, I would just play the CD and CD dot dot game for a 20 minutes to kind of let my heart rate slow back down. Um, so the game itself is a, a text-based game. It was the very, very first game that allowed you to explore a virtual world. All of the first games were invented for the computer were symbolic, were things like chess, were things yeah. like um, checkers, that already in the real physical world involve abstract symbols. A knight and a chessboard or a a checker, which has abstract rules around how it behaves. Uh, The adventure game uh, was first written by uh, Willie Crowther, who who was a caver. And he invented a little game where by typing little commands, go north, go south, get keys, unlock grate, you could... Um, and the instructions told you to go find uh, treasures in a nearby cave, you could find your way into a cave system, which he modeled on a real-life cave system in Kentucky. 
So for the, the, the small intersection of people that are both cavers and, and who play this game, apparently, they recognize the series of chambers you go through as, as plausible. And he added a few things, which you do not find underground in Kentucky. Uh, a rod with a rusty black star on the end that you can discover by accident creates a crystal bridge when you wave it over a, a fissure you can't cross. You find a nugget of gold and a few other treasures, and occasionally a dwarf will come around a corner and try to murder you, murder you with an axe. Um, <laughs> yeah. This was, was all invented by uh, a, a student who, who, who wrote this, and he then kind of got bored of the project, and someone named Don Woods picked it up and added several more elements to the cave, added some more treasures, and, and added a, I think, unreasonably hard end game to it. But um, so I, as a child, when they uh, adults just wanted to keep talking and we were getting tired, they put me upstairs and I would sit and I, I, I regret that people play the game not in the dark because its conceit is that once you're underground, which is a few moves in, you're in the dark and you can't see what is outside of the small pool of lamp light from your battery powered lamp. And uh, I think for some players, they only remember they're in the dark if they play in a lighted room when it says a pirate jumps out of the shadows and, and steals one of your treasures and takes it away. Um, but when you're, you know, not yet 10 years old, not in your own house, but in a stranger's house, upstairs, in the dark, only maybe the murmur of the adults talking far below you, I would get jumpy enough that I would actually jump and my heart would race <laughs> when the next description that came up at 300 baud on the screen was not the words I was expecting from going west from the Hall oh, of the wow. Mountain King. As you're trying to figure out the layout of the um, caves, how to get in and out alive, because if your lamp goes out, you fall into a pit and you die, um, you come to get used to what the next room is. I'm going west, I'm going to be in the Hall of the Mountain King, and there's a sudden startle if the words that come up are a good deal more alarming than that. So having played this as a kid, um, I, uh, I, I think I'd seen a, a tweet or a note about it that mentioned an Easter egg I had never encountered. And that made me wonder, how many Easter eggs are, are, um, are in the game? Are, are there many more than that? And as Python 3 was coming out, I thought to myself, what if I re-implemented this in Python 3? I would get to go through the Fortran line by line and kind of uh, see how it worked on the inside, since it was really the first interactive fiction that ever really captured my imagination. That's incredible. So you did, you converted it line by line? Yes, um, and, and Fortran of that era, written by an undergrad, is, is quite startling code. Among other things, it, does not, it doesn't do structured program, programming. You can't say, you know, if A is greater than 1, and then have multiple lines of code that switch on or off, depending on whether A is greater than 1. Instead, you have to say, if A is less than or equal to 1, Go to line 1002, and then have the line of lines of code that you do want to run if A is greater than 1, and then label the next one line 1002. 
So a number of the conventions of contemporary Fortran were backwards. You're constantly reading the situation in which you don't want to do the next few lines of code. And so I don't even remember if I found more than like one additional Easter egg, but I got to translate a lot of backwards lines of Fortran into to Python 3 and, and then also do what I, I wanted. I wanted to get practice with Python 3's very stringent rules around text, Unicode, bytes, which, um, which was something I saw, uh, you know, a lot of people were having difficulties with. And I wanted to go ahead on a project where I wasn't on the clock and encounter all of the quirks that I was reading about, um, you know, Python 3 inflicting on its audience. Oh, cool. This is a, even a cooler story than I thought it would be. Um, this is great. This episode is brought to you by PyCharm. Have you ever been working on several files at once? Or maybe writing some code and using a different function, even in this file or some other file, as a reference? And also have the test code open and maybe the color of the function for an example? I do stuff like this all of the time. And to save time jumping around, I've started to use PyCharm bookmarks. You just drop a bookmark in the gutter wherever. Then you select View Tools Favorites, and then you've got a little window with all of my bookmarks that are right there and clickable. I can even edit the descriptions to remember why I bookmarked these things in the first place. I like making sure I do this and using things like work on, reference, test code, example usage, stuff like that. Just one of the ways PyCharm saves me both time and mental space. Try PyCharm yourself by going to testandcode.com slash PyCharm. Save time, use PyCharm. One of the co- things I think is interesting is that you did recreate the the three hundred baud situation, or yeah, uh, um, with with, with the, if if you run it from the command line. Um, I can't remember. I've done it. I've done both. There's the command. You can run it. You can import it and run it, or you can run it from uh, the command line. And one of them does the baud thing, right? right? Uh, so it gives you responses instantly and doesn't try to modulate the, um, the return value, what's printed on the screen, if you play it at the Python prompt, which was um, something I did mainly because I realized I could, and, and ostensibly because since it was a project that got me into Python 3, um, I thought, well, why shouldn't other people be brought to the Python 3 prompt uh, in order to play the game? And so you can play it at the Python prompt, an import statement will then uh, make some extra built-ins available that make things like go west, get key, and unlock great. We'll make those available as, as words right at the Python prompt. Um, but if instead you want to use a more normal prompt at which to type, if, if you simply from the command line run the module, then it offers a more normal custom read line prompt. And to recreate the experience I had of sitting there at the edge of my chair, waiting to see what the pirate had done to me, or whether the dwarf had gotten me this time, um, it prints out the uh, letters slowly. Um, I might have upped it to 1200 baud. I'd have to look back uh, in, just in order to make it a little less uh, tedious. For for <laughs> yeah. people more accustomed to modern terminal speeds, 
I think they, I think the at least the README does say twelve hundred baht. I got that wrong. So no, that's fine. The um, uh, and, and and honestly, I don't remember exactly what baht I played it at, but um, but this connects with a whole other subject. Was it difficult though? Was was it difficult to slow it down? I don't even know how to do that. Uh, you just write one character at a time, and then time dot sleep for uh, enough time to. uh, So you get a second, divide it by twelve hundred, and then you do the normal thing where it wouldn't work to sleep that amount of time. That would be a little too slow because you've already used up a little time writing it to the screen, right? So you write it to the screen do a little subtraction to figure out how much of the little slice of time you've already used and sleep for the rest of it. But you get a, a very close approximation as a result of 1200 baht. Wow. Okay. Yeah. that was so obvious. I wouldn't have thought to do that. Um, so that- it works. Computers are so fast these days. You can just sleep for a tiny fraction of a second <laughs> and, and it's like, okay. The, it's, um, it's, a, yeah. it's a fun experience though. I, I mean, it, it, because when I replayed it, I mean, I, I forgot that, that that was part of the experience, was waiting for the words to come out. Um, I, I, think that, um, I think that a lot of, I think that it's a very broad issue these days that people look at text rather than reading it. Yeah. Generally, you just, as you're looking at an article online, you need to get back to your work. You're looking at each paragraph. You're not reading it. And and to some extent, I think one that makes people tone deaf to an author's voice, if you're simply looking at each paragraph to pick something out, you don't, you can't tell the difference between someone whose phrasing is rich and cadenced and and someone whose language is very, maybe bald and and plain. I remember it was an endless uh, frustration to read fantasy books people would recommend to me in late college after I'd read Lord of the Rings. And I wondered how they could recommend such badly written books. And it eventually (laughs) became clear to me that some people don't hear a voice in their head as they read. And so there isn't a difference to them between the rich cadence of Tolkien and the perhaps more blaring, squawking um, writing of another author because they literally don't hear either as speech. They see it on the page as wizards and dwarves and excitement, and don't pick up on there being a cadence in the writing as well. And the, um, I also have a private theory that, that we can talk about some other time, that the reason graphic designers no longer like putting extra space after the period, as always had been done in European books, and don't like putting a double space in, in monospace typing after a period ends a sentence, is partly because they look at things rather than read them. If you just look at a paragraph from a distance, why are there these extra wide spaces? They don't match. They don't fit. Uh, whereas if you're reading and going for, for cadence, it, it is helpful that the gap is, is a bit larger where your voice will pause longer. And I realized as I was playing it at full speed, at full modern terminal speed, I realized that something was missing. And it was that I wasn't, so to speak, being forced to read the word sequentially. I wasn't reading a dwarf comes around the corner and waiting on the edge of my seat to see if the knife gets me. 
Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, I added that back, not just because of nostalgia, but also because I found that I, I rode with, I rode along with the text. I experienced it linearly if it came onto the screen just about as fast as I could read it. Yeah. Um, did you, does it require very much updating or is it pretty much keep working through the new versions of Python? The fortunately, um, the, it, it uses completely standard Python data structures, lists and dictionaries. Um, I got everything pretty much, I, I believe, correct with the, you know, uh, Unicode or, or um, encoding in and out. Obviously, its original data is all ASCII because it was, um, you know, 1970s where they, they couldn't easily put tildes on things. Um, the only report I get is at this point, once every few years, someone will encounter a genuine bug. There will be a place where I thought I was faithfully copying what the Fortran code did, but missed a little nuance that I didn't think to write a test for because I didn't get that the expression had that nuance. And it only happens if you're not carrying the chain when you do something to the bear or whatever the situation is. And someone will run across that circumstance and open an issue, and I have to go in and, and dig back into that code after three years away. And at first, as I don't know if, if this happened, if you have any open source projects, but there's always this, oh, come on, I worked hard. There can't be yet another problem with that. And I always kind of have this emotional sort of difficulty I have to get over with the fact that, that something did go wrong. and I. Someone opened this issue, and how could this? Maybe it's the fault of the Indianness of the system they're running on. How could this? And I'll go in oh, yeah. and I'll try to run that command and not have the chain with the bear. And the same exception happens. And I go, well, my gosh, 10 years after writing that, there is another bug with it. And I, I, I uh, write a test case for it and, and go in and get it fixed. But no. The additional versions of Python have uh, so far been non-events. The um, uh, the three series has been fairly stable with respect to data structures and strings. Well, now now I'm curious about how you would test it. So, uh, what the, do tests look like for this? Well, um, there might be. Uh, so, you'll recall that through an egregious hack. Um, that was the, the subject of a, a famous lightning talk at, at PyCon many years ago. Through an egregious hack, I got the game where you could play it, a pair of hacks, or you could play it at the Python prompt. The hacks being one, getting all of the words, all the vocabulary of the game, and adding it to built-ins. So that when you typed get open paren lamp, close paren, both of those symbols would now exist and not give you a name error. The other egregious hack, egregious hack being, well, what if you just type West? Because in the, uh, the game's built-in interpreter, you can type West, or more often W, because you only have so long to you know, live. Um, so the, the game uh, has single-letter abbreviations for the cardinal directions. You type W, and you go somewhere else. Uh, at the Python prompt, you're going to have to type W, 
open close paren enter in order to run this w built-in function that I'd added. So um, I, I gave a lightning talk once at Python where I introduced the project and said that, you know, this is almost a hopeless situation because in Ruby, you can invoke a function by just naming it. If you have a function named w in Ruby, you can just say w and it happens. Hmm. In Python, if you type w and hit enter at the prompt, it just says built-in function w or, or, or <laughs> function w yeah. or, or whatever. However, that is doing one thing. It is running the wrapper of the object F. <laughs> oh my God. And so I just built a special little class of which all of these keywords are instances that you can invoke not only by saying W open close paren, but that you can also invoke simply by asking for their wrapper. Asking for the wrapper of the W West object also, um, runs the game engine, figures out where that navigates you to, and then prints the description of the new location um, on the screen. So, um, and, and that's kind of the, the, the thing that let me uh, make it usable at the prompt, where you wouldn't have to follow the directions with open and close parens and spend all your time typing. Um, and I realized, once I'd done that, that I could now test the game using .test. <laughs> all I, needed, I did not think we were going this way. All far, I but. needed to do was write some text files, uh, you know, stabilize the random number generator at the top so that either the dwarf kills you or not deterministically when he comes around the corner. And then just have a dot test where there's, you know, the triple chevrons W for West and then the description of the room that should come up. And um, there are one or two, I think, complete walkthroughs of the game as doc tests, which you can also just read through if you want to experience the game without having to learn all of its uh, events yourself. So that was fun because writing them kind of, and oh, wait, wait I got to test this circumstance, kind of took me through all of the uh, circumstances that could occur in the game. And then there are a few edge cases, like when people would open bugs, that didn't seem worth a full walkthrough. Why visit every room over again for this one little circumstance? Yeah. So there are also some doc tests that reach into the internals of the game, adjust some variables to go ahead and set me to a certain location, and then see what happens with the chain and the bear or um, whatever. And um, yeah, those are all in the form of doc tests. That's a brilliant use of doc tests. I love that. I was extremely pleased with how that came together. As I was adding the ability to play it at the prompt, it had not immediately occurred to me that this solved my testing story as well, but it did. Uh, nice. That's, that's, just so, that's just so cool. I'm gonna, I'm, I think I'm going to read through all of these. Um, actually, I, before I do that, I kind of want to explore it more. I didn't realize the game had so much richness. I don't think I've I've done that. So if so, if if somebody were to even if they knew all the secrets, um, and have done it before, how long does it take to get through the game, approximately? Do you know? Um, a speed run, if you happen to not get killed by a dwarf, could probably uh, be done in in somewhere between ten minutes and thirty minutes. If you know what you're doing, if you've memorized the maze that is in one part of the cave, 
Um, and if you are, are just going through each treasure and, and getting in and out, it can be done rather quickly if you remember where everything is. Um, but it, uh, so, so it was, uh, it was very fortunate, I think, for the future of games, as this was written in the 70s, that, so, so, I'd say a positive for the, the, the future of games is that the game was fun and clever. Um, it has little jokes. It has kind of a wry humor about it. And um, the fact that it didn't take everything deadly seriously, but kind of it, it, it is, is having fun with being a, a small enclosed realm of text and, and adventure, I think really set a tone that was taken up by the whole um, tradition that followed it from um, pure text things like Zork to the Sierra games. I don't know if you've ever played King's Quest or one of those games <clears throat> that combined graphics and text, but those also tended to have uh, humor as one of the elements. Uh, the downside, I would say, to the game is that the extent of its puzzles are try to guess what to do. <laughs> so you are not told up front what the possible set of verbs are. So you have to discover by accident which verbs result in saying, I don't know that word, and which words, verbs like swing result in, oh, nothing happens. So you now know you can swing things. It wasn't confused by, by the, that word. But what are you supposed to swing and when? And if you don't happen to try swinging the rod with the rusty black star, when you're standing in front of the fissure you can't cross, you're never going to discover that, um, that that's how to create the crystal bridge and be able to move further west. So I'd say my criticism of its design is that the puzzles tended to just be walk around the cave doing things till something worked. There was no real, which I think was a downside of, of many games in its tradition from there on out. And, and I think gaming is still recovering in many respects from the, well, just do stuff until you guess uh, approach to an adventure. Interesting. We've kind of came back to there because when I was playing video games, a lot of the games I played when I was younger, things like, uh, I don't know, just the like asteroids and happy and and uh, arcade like games. There was most of them. You kind of knew. I mean, like Donkey Kong, you got to get from the bottom to the top and jump over barrels. It wasn't complicated. There wasn't any guessing of there. And plus, the input was like you know a joystick and a, a button, so it, you could try combinations of that. But really, that's really it. You can't do. You can't type in any word. And then we kind of got. I. I I don't know. We had a PS2 for a while and had a snowboard game, and I'm like, I'm good I, I, with this. I played that all the time. And then when this one, I had a small child, and then uh, and then we um, didn't have any games for a while, and I thought, eh, let's get another one. And so we got an Xbox, and then got uh, it was one of the Assassin's Creed games. And I like to play games like 20 minutes at a time, and I jumped in, and 20 minutes later, I wasn't even through the intro. Wow. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to try to play this. But you just sort of have to wander around and figure out what you're supposed to do. To me, that's not fun. So There are some people for whom their sense of, of exploration 
is, is apparently satisfied by having no idea what to do with the rod with the black star on the end <laughs> and just wandering around a cave. And, and uh, as a child, I, I obviously had some capacity to be entertained wandering around with a small collection of objects, a key, a cage, a few other things, and, and trying to figure out what could I do in this, in this uh, virtual world. Um, but, but there is something to be said for um, knowing the rules, knowing what you're doing, knowing what all the objects are capable of, and trying to put together interesting solutions. I uh, that For me, the difference there uh, between those two styles of, of play really uh, came out when back in the 20 aughts, I, I played a little bit of NetHack. And um, there's two ways to play NetHack. One, where you don't know what you're doing, don't know what objects do, aren't sure what all the commands are doing and are trying to learn. And the other, where you read the spoilers files. There are these big, there's this little tome you can download, which is the official spoilers for how wands work for how spells work, and so forth. And I did a little playing without guidance. I did a little reading. I did a little more playing. And then I went and read all the spoilers files. <laughs> because I realized there might be a person that wants to play, uh, let's say, a World War II combat game. Learning by trial and error, what does a grenade do? What happens when I pull this pin out? Oh, what? when do I use a, a pistol? What is it good for? Oh, what is a rifle? I don't know what a rifle is. Like, like you can imagine going into a World War II game with no idea of what the objects do and a person being entertained by discovering one after another what the objects do. But there's a whole other way of playing where you do some reading, figure out what each of those objects are for, and where the challenge isn't, what does this object do? The challenge is, oh, I know what this object is good for. Let's see if I can use the objects in the right combination to keep my men alive and accomplish my mission. Yeah. And I realized that adventure had trained me about one kind of joy, of not knowing the rules, not knowing what I can and can't do. And adventure isn't hard enough that you aren't going to have a good time, at least if you're me, wandering around and kind of learning most of the rules from the ground up. NetHack is not that kind of game. NetHack, if you, if, at least for me, if you go in not knowing the rules, you're just going to die over and over and over again very early and <laughs> give up. Ex unless, in my case, you sit down and read all the spoilers files and is that cheating? Is that Am I missing out? And I, I, I ask myself, well, is the person playing the World War II shoot 'em up missing out if they just if they just go in with a knowledge of what the tools are for? And I decided that with NetHack, I wasn't going to play it. Um, I wasn't going to enjoy playing it that way. That yeah. I was going to accept all of the knowledge I could get from the spoilers files as the kind of knowledge that you go into a, a game with um, with rifles, knowing how yeah. to use them. And that it is two very different styles. And um, game developers these days um, have, have to balance the two. If you don't have the, the latter, if you don't have that second phase where you now know all of the basics, but you're trying to 
them together and solve puzzles in interesting ways, you don't get replayability. Once you see, hmm. if a game is just about exploration, um, then once you've explored, you can maybe wait a while, forget most of the game, and go back, get to explore again. But that feeling of novelty when you first reach the fissure and don't know how to cross it only can happen as a novelty a few times. Um, whereas with something like NetHack, where NetHack is just hard, even if you know every single rule, every single object, um, uh, with a game that's really hard but open to interesting solutions like that, there's a lot of replayability. Because even being an expert, um, and, and, and for me in the last decade, I'd say, FTL, Faster Than Light, a game where you're on a spaceship trying to race and get secret information to the Federation before the Rebels attack them, is a perfect example of something where even once you know all the rules, you are fighting tooth and nail to think of solutions to the problems you meet as you encounter random, increasingly difficult um, enemy ships. And um, yeah, there's, 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 there's definitely those, those two different uh, approaches, and it sounds like um, the uh, Assassin's Creed game um, was wanting to kind of lead you past over maybe an hour or two of tutorial, lead you through the not knowing what you're doing stage to, you know, then get you into uh, the game having a, a better than average chance of not, you know, having the game end very, very quickly as you run into dangerous situations you can't handle. Yeah. And I, I also, I'm, I'm not your typical player as well. I'm, I've got friends that just they they love that when it when a game to complete it takes you know ten twenty thirty hours because because it's so much they get so much value for their money they they get so many hours of entertainment and I'm you know I have maybe I want to dedicate like ten hours of playtime per year um, <laughs> not in a weekend so I, I uh, follow a, a game developer uh, who I who I. Uh, met once after um, we made some comments to each other on Twitter many years ago. I then had the opportunity to meet him when I was at a, a conference in Europe. Uh, Yuri Hornman uh, is Dutch, now lives in Toronto and works in game development, has been doing it longer than almost anyone else, has incredible insights. But one of the things he uh, tweeted the other day, he admitted he plays everything on easy. He's there for the exploration. He's there to learn and admire a game system. He doesn't want to spend the, the minutes he has on a game each day trying and trying to accomplish something difficult or getting killed over and over by a particular boss. He wants to have a good time. Um, and, and so he plays everything he says uneasy. Uh, that's his big confession, he said, is that that's how he chooses to experience games. I do think it's neat that games have that option now that like uh, people can explore a game, learn how it works and then go, Oh, I want to replay it, but I want it to be more difficult. And I bump up the started playing FTL on easy because the learning curve would have been, I believe too steep for me to enjoy. Otherwise, if yeah. every small mistake had gotten me killed, then I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much as being able to be in that beginner mode learn the mechanics while I'm not 
as vulnerable as the uh, spaceship I'm fighting, and then um, you know ramp up the difficulty level when I'm ready to have for FTL. You know, people call it the real experience of playing it on the intermediate level that it was um, designed for. And you know, one of the issues I'd say with adventure is that there wasn't a mechanism for that um, back in, in the 70s. A very first foray, again, into writing a virtual world, something that's not chess or checkers, but, but, but is a, a cave system with descriptions uh, that, that you get to enjoy. And I, I would say with Adventure, you just kind of, um, you just kind of play until you're out of things that interest you. I would say that some people just, all right, I've collected half the treasures. I've gone all the places I can figure out. think I'm done. And, <laughs> and the game won't help you reach that decision. You just have to get bored and stop. The, yeah. Then there might be the people that are willing to, on a sheet of paper, try every single direction from every single room. Um, because there's some rooms that, oh, if you go northwest, though it's not clear from the description, there is a crack leading that direction leads you to a secret room or whatever. So uh, you then get rewarded with some more treasures and some more achievements if you do that. Then there are the people that are willing to explore using the little chart they're writing, the mazes in all of their detail, uh, one of which is easier because each room description is different. You're in a maze of twisty little passages, all different. You're in a twisty maze of little passages, all different, and each room description is subtly different so you can keep up with where you are. But then there's the maze where every room looks the same. So you have to drop objects. You have to go out into the world, collect more objects, and drop them in the rooms of the maze to make them distinct as you're writing down all of the crazy east-west, north-south uh, nonlinear connections between the rooms. So there are people that are willing to go through that and get another treasure or two. Uh, then if you collect all the treasures and make it to the end game, you wind up in this really big room. And there is one thing you have to do to get out of the game and finish it. I never figured that out until I saw uh, one day I saw a list of the verbs the game supported and realized it was one verb I hadn't used. If I had mm. not happened on that fact, I would never have finished the game. Um, I don't know how anyone has ever had uh, patience to finish without getting some kind of hint. But... Um, if you do that, then you may get 249 points out of 200, uh, 349 points out of 350, and you're nearly there. That last point requires you to do something obscure and non-obvious with a magazine, and you would only discover the answer if you just started doing hundreds of things with a magazine and checking your score after doing each one to find <laughs> out what the one thing you can do with Spelunker today in order to earn that last point. So the, the game sort of, uh, you, you finish the game because you get bored and frustrated. And, and, and so uh, unfortunately, uh, the game kind of sends you away where you finish it by being too bored and frustrated. I would be surprised if anyone has ever figured all of that out. Every one of the 350 points without some help um, or just without having an extremely high tolerance for endless experimentation. Because you don't know it's the magazine that gets you the last point. 
Could be anything you could do with any object that randomly, without telling you, earns you a point. And, well, now I know uh, it's the magazine. So I've, I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've, sorry, sorry, spoilers. <laughs> and um, and and so uh, I'd say that a big problem with that initial generation of of adventure and, and maybe some of its immediate successors is that there isn't a um, the only difficulty level is when do you stop. When do you get frustrated and decide this is oh, pointless? Yeah. And so everyone's last memory of it is likely to be, well, I Bad. gave up and went and got some help, and so I finished. Or, you know, I just didn't accomplish anything for the last 10 hours I was playing, so I just stopped. And, and, that's, and that's a very unfortunate difficulty metric. You just stop because you get frustrated and bored and yeah. know that you gave up on the game. Uh, but for that very, very first uh, outing of interactive fiction, unfortunately, quitting is the only mechanism for controlling the the complexity. Yeah. Well, actually, that was my experience with Halo. So I tried to watch huh. play Halo, and I would just get I would go too slow. It was on easy mode, of course, and I would still just get stuck on some ship or stuck somewhere with nowhere else to go. And there's, I can't tell that there's anything to do. One of my daughter's friends that was an expert at Halo, I'd have to like ask my daughter to ask her friend how to get out of something. And then she would eventually just come over and show me. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I could continue on. And I just got to the point also just that I was bored with it. But, um, but I'm just not a, it's just me. I, I'm not a shoot 'em up kind of person. I don't, I don't enjoy like first person shooter games. So, um, anyway. I'm actually more excited about trying this this adventure game. I only played it a few minutes, but is there, um, like you were saying that maybe there was a list of verbs. Is there a list of verbs somewhere that I could kind of cheat that way to find those out? Or do I have to like look at the source code? I'm not aware that there's any way to get the game to display the list of verbs, um, either by finding uh, documentation online that lists them or by looking at the files. You do have to go outside of the game uh, okay. to find them. Um, obviously, if you import built-ins, you could look for things that you don't recognize as, you know, built-in words. But um, yeah, the source code or, or an external reference, uh, I believe, are the only ways to do it. I, I mean, if you type okay. help in the game, it tries to give you some general advice. I don't believe it has a mechanism that will list the verbs. Okay. Um, well, I'll try to figure that out and, and just play. But one of the things I liked about some of those old games was just, like you were saying, having a piece of paper and just writing my own map or writing down the just things that would work. Oh, swing works. I'm going to write swing down. Or, you know, north. Oh, I can just type N and it works. I don't have to type the whole north thing. Um, and, and Things like that. Yeah, and the um, because it is as as... As I draw, as, as I drew my little map of it, one thing I did enjoy again is because at least the opening sections are based on a real cave. Um, uh, you start in a, a, next to a well house for a large spring. You follow the creek downhill. And then the stream bed goes dry because the stream pours into a little slit in the rock. Uh, when you then have figured out how to get into the cave system, that same little stream of water keeps turning up 
deeper and deeper into the cave and you can kind of trace out all the places it visits on its way Mm. in and out of the limestone as it uh, descends into the earth. And so mapping was uh, kind of neat because there is a geologic story being uncovered um, in the the initial uh, phases of the cave, uh, which is, again, a real one based on a real cave system where things like water and and underground uh, creeks are behaving in realistic ways working their narrative in and out of yours. One last thought. I found that I was last year able to introduce several people to antique interactive online gaming by reading adventure to them and letting them play it from the other couch by telling me what they wanted to do next. One of the tedious difficulties for many people, as we've just discussed, is learning the vocabulary. I want to, to, to do this with a rod, but I'm having to guess what verb the limited vocabulary of the game might support. Well, if, if the person playing is just asking you, a friend, well, I want to try waving the wand, you can say swing rod and then tell them the result. You can translate between their intuition, which might be correct about what they want to do, and the game's limited vocabulary. I discovered this by accident when I was, was on a trip with some friends at night. Uh, we, we got on the topic of computer games. I mentioned adventure, and they were intrigued. So I started it on my laptop there in my lap, read to them the opening description, and they started saying, all right, well, we want to go into the building. So I entered the correct command for that, and I read the next description to them. And they got about an hour into their first interactive online fiction thanks to the fact that I could sort of impedance match and remove the difficulties of vocabulary that the the gamer playing an old vocabulary limited game like this uh, tends to encounter. I I could also do things like kind of let them know if they were going, if if, if it wasn't going to work. Because, you know, if they try doing something that doesn't work, I could say, yeah, it doesn't work. Well, what? Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. And whereas the player playing it solo just has to try 30 or 40 verbs for what they think the solution might be, and even then they might be right and not have thought of the 41st verb, which is the correct one, um, a human listening to the person's, I want to go down there. Yeah, I don't think you can go down there. You can just go ahead and short circuit the tedium. And let the person focus on the exploration. Um, it was it was sort of fun. I had never. Uh, it was only by accident I, I came across that idea of letting other people explore through me and my voice the world yeah. of an uh, interactive text game. Well, and you could do that as a like a group thing. Then just have a handful of people in a room, and they come up it. with different ideas that play off one another. They also because there were a few people there, they also will remember things the other person doesn't. One person yeah. will say, swing the rod, and the others will say, nope, nope, we tried that here. And they make progress faster because their corporate memory memory might be stronger than the individual memories. Yeah. Oh, neat. I, I love that idea. Next, I'm planning on trying, uh, I believe it was, was it Yuri? I saw recently, someone or somebody retweeted, talking about there was a game called The Hobbit that came out in that first Zork era collection of, of interactive text games. 
but it was unusual in that the characters are moving around and doing things even when you can't see them. And oh, apparently wow. each playthrough is very different because Gandalf might have wandered off somewhere else this time and not be <laughs> at Rivendell when you get there. So I'm planning on a few playthroughs of that just because apparently people who were there for that era really remember that as being an outside-the-box unusual game because sometimes you just can't win because Gandalf has gone and getting, gotten himself killed by a goblin and yeah. so you're not going to win this time. All random. The, the, um, the Zork is actually how I got to adventure in the first place. Oh, um, yeah. Because I didn't think it was real. Um, I, uh, I watched the, I'm a big fan of the TV series, Chuck. Um, and in that game, uh, or in that show, the main character and his old best friend used to play Zork in college. And I'm like, is that real? Cause I've never heard of it. And I looked it up and it's like, Oh yeah, it is real. And it's based on adventure. And, um, and then I looked up both of those and I'm like, I wonder if there's Python versions. I want to play them. And, uh, it looks, and, and then came across your adventure and I'm like, Oh my God, Brandon did adventure. That's cool. Do you know if there's a Python Zork? I haven't heard, but, um, some of those later games, maybe adventure itself. I'm not sure. Um, there, there eventually was an era where writing those was so popular that someone came up with a table driven, um, uh, where you didn't have to do any coding. You just could write a series of text files in a certain markup, and uh, uh, a generic interpreter could open your file, understand your map, understand how your objects interacted, understand your special verbs and where they didn't 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 did and didn't apply. And and that by just creating this table of words and replies and location descriptions, you could power your own text game. And I believe that Zork was ported to that interpreter system, whose acronym I forget. But um, once games have been ported to that more generic table-driven form, you're often able to run them without needing to find a specific implementation of anything but that table-driven system for your uh, operating system or programming oh, language cool. of choice. I'll check it out. Um, and my, do you, do you happen to know? Did you ever read those uh, choose your own adventure like books? I did. Some of do them you know, had hit points, and I would die partway through, and you'd have <laughs> to decide whether to cheat and to just keep going and pretend yeah. like you were still alive. Do you know if those came before these text adventure ga- games, or if they were after? I know the ones I read came after Adventure and, and maybe Zork, but I would have to look at publishing history that I don't know to find okay. out, did the very first one proceed or follow? Or if, there have, if they had any relation, if they built on each other or not. But anyway, uh, it, interesting. It's, yeah, and it's interesting, a, a whole other subject, why some ideas became technically feasible but then didn't happen for 400 years. Choose Your Own Adventure has been technically feasible since the invention of the printing press. Actually feasible for that if you were willing to do it in a scroll or, or you know, a, a yeah. handwritten codex. But for some reason, it didn't happen to like the 70s or 80s. And I'm very interested by, uh, by ideas like that that are obvious in retrospect. Why didn't the Romans have Choose Your Own Adventure? Yeah. But but for some reason, it 
uh, it's a form that came around the same time as interactive fiction. Yeah. I've taken a ton of your time, but I've had a blast, uh, this, these memories of the past. So thank you first off for, um, to doing this conversion so that we have uh, a Python version of adventure. And also thanks for coming on this show. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Hope you have a good day. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon, for that super fun discussion. Thank you also to Patreon supporters. Join them at testandcode.com slash support. Thank you, PyCharm, for sponsoring the show. Save time, use PyCharm, and try out bookmarks. Check them out at testandcode.com slash PyCharm. That link is also in the show notes at testandcode.com slash 151. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. <laughs>